Good morning. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John this morning. So open your Bibles to John 8, verses 31 through 36. John 8, verses 31 through 36. And as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, how blessed we are to come together as the body of Christ and magnify you. Thank you for such a sweet opportunity to come together corporately and praise you in song, in prayer, in reading of your word, in the preaching of your word, Father. We ask that everyone walk out of here with a higher, more loftier view of who you are. Help us now as we listen to your word, we see you, help us to love you more, be more zealous for you. In Christ's name, amen. So let's read John 8, verses 31 through 36. And it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? What a glorious passage we get to go through this morning. We see that Jesus was talking to the Jews that actually believed in him. So we would expect Jesus to encourage them to get excited about their newfound belief. Maybe say something like, welcome to the family of God, or the angels in heaven are praising over your decision to follow me. Is this how Christ responds to them? And the answer is no. Jesus actually sees their shallow belief, their shallow faith, their false false faith they espouse. And I say this because we can go to the end of the chapter of John 8 here and see that these very same people who say they believe in him at the end of the chapter want to kill him. So Jesus knows their faith is false. So he begins by explaining to them what real faith looks like. What it means to be a true disciple of Christ Jesus. So in our section this morning, we're going to look at some of the characteristics of a genuine, true disciple has. So let's look back to verse 31 of John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So Jesus says to these Jews, If you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, if you hold on to my word through the thick and the thin, you are truly my disciple, which leads to characteristic number one. A disciple perseveres. Characteristic number one says that a disciple perseveres. The question is, what does it actually look like to persevere as a disciple? We get a sense of a person 
who is focused on Christ, who lives for Christ, who is passionate for Christ, who loves Christ, which means they spend time in God's Word. They study. They meditate. They wrestle with. They memorize God's Word. They live in God's Word. They love God's Word because that's where they find Christ. That's where they find Christ. Which means that a disciple of Christ will stay a disciple of Christ. It means that a disciple of Christ will always be a disciple of Christ. Amen? The official motto of the Marines is, Once a Marine, always a Marine. It's something they carry with them. The training, the dedication, the memories, the pride of being an elite soldier of the United States will go with them, right? Let me ask us this morning if we should expect anything less from a disciple of Christ. There's some other differences between a disciple and a Marine. A disciple of Christ does not earn their salvation. They don't earn their relationship with Christ, right? But also, what makes a disciple of Christ different than a Marine is that they can't keep their salvation either. It's God who keeps it, right? This doctrine is known as perseverance of the saints or eternal security, which means that a disciple can't lose or won't lose their salvation. The question is why? Why can't a Christ follower lose their salvation? Well, let's read. Let's look at Romans 8, 31 through 39, and it says this. And this is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Rome. And he says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul says, it's Christ that keeps us safe. Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. We can praise God knowing that we are justified in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's even more than that. It's more than just Christ because our salvation is Trinitarian in nature. It was the Trinity working together that brought about our salvation. It was the Trinity that brought our salvation to fruition in the first place. 
As John 3.16 says, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? We can see that God the Father initiated salvation by planning a way for mankind. But while we can also look and see that God the Son accomplished salvation by obeying, by following, by submitting to the Father's will in all things. But it doesn't end there because we have God the Holy Spirit applied salvation. He applied it by drawing us to Jesus, to Christ, and transforming us from the inside out. Amen? So we see the Trinity working together. If Christ is our Lord and Savior, then we can have confidence that God won't let us go. The Godhead keeps us secure. Amen? But please don't hear me saying that we no longer sin. Or we can't rebel against God any longer. Even as a believer, we can decide to go our own way to a point. As James tells us, God does not tempt anyone to sin, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we got to remember that James is writing to the churches in the area, so he's speaking to Christians as he writes this. So we can sin. We can make some awful choices that affect our life, that have grave consequences to our life. I mean, look at the life of David, right? He slept with another man's wife, lied about it, and then murdered the woman's husband. For his sinful actions, David faced some serious consequences, right? And yet, God showed David grace. He showed David grace. Listen to what Nathan the prophet says to David after he confesses his sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. David wasn't abandoned by God. But God disciplined him like a father disciplines his son. Amen? God never let David go. God continued to love David. He loved him so much that he disciplined him, right? But what's even more mind-blowing, more astonishing, is that God says he will use all of our life for his purposes. We often think about God using the good works he leads us to, right? But God, we see in Scripture that it teaches that God will use even our sinfulness as well. Let's listen to Romans 8.28. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to to his perfect purpose. All things, church, in this passage, you know what it means? All things. Thank you, Alvin. Exactly. Thank you. All things, right? That's what it's saying. Even our sinful choices, God uses everything in our life for his glory and our good. I wonder if we understand the security we have in Christ Jesus this morning. If we have turned to Christ in repentance and faith, then we can have confidence that God will keep us secure in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to our main passage. 
And we're in John 8, 31, and we're going to go through 8, 32 as well. And it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. Let's stop there. Jesus says that disciples will know truth. The disciples can see life as it really is, which leads to characteristic number two. A disciple knows reality. Characteristic number two says that a disciple knows reality. And the first reality is having an accurate, right view of Christ. A disciple recognizes Christ as both Lord and Savior. They see Christ for who He really is. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, truth, and the light. We come to see that truth isn't impersonal. It's not following a set of rules or regulations, but we come to know that truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. When we see Christ clearly, as he is a capital T truth, then we begin to see all of life more accurately as well because the light of Christ, the truth, shines on everything else in our life. Seeing Christ gives us the right perspective of God, which allows us to have a clear view of ourselves for the first time as well. It was Socrates who said, know thyself, right? The reality is we can't even begin to know ourselves or see ourselves correctly unless we know God. God is the embodiment of truth. As we look at God all of, of all truth, we begin to see truth even about ourselves as well. John Calvin said this, We observe that no one ever attains clear knowledge of self unless he is gazed First, upon the face of the Lord, and then turns back to look upon himself. Calvin reminds us that gazing on a sovereign, omnipotent, om omniscient, holy God will always give us clarity of who we are. Looking, gazing at God and looking back at ourselves is always a humbling, a sobering process, but it leads to real truth. We see reality, we begin to see who we really are. We begin to see ourselves in light of God's holiness. His holiness magnifies our sinfulness. His purity shines through us and reveals areas that we have been blind to. We recognize that we aren't as good or innocent as we thought we were. We see that we have lived a life of self instead of for God. It causes us to turn from depending on ourself and fall on our knees in utter brokenness and begin to depend on God brings about a sadness and joy at the same time as we see that we have rebelled against God. But joy in the fact that God's grace becomes a real living reality in our life. We see the significance of what is so amazing about God's grace. But it's not only God's holiness that reveals who we truly are. But we also see his other attributes as well. For example, we get a glimpse of his eternal love that shines down on us. The light and that light of God's love reveals the shallowness, the corruption of our own love. We can see 
how lame our love is, even to our spouse. We recognize that our love is often based on a give and take relationship. You scratch my back and I will scratch yours. We say things like, you aren't meeting my needs, honey. Or, I'm the only one in this relationship who is being selfless. Or, the real spiritual ones read the five love languages and they say things like, honey, you're not practicing my love language. You're not speaking my love language. My love language is giving, getting gifts, right? As God's perfect love shines on our sinful heart, we see how our love for our spouse is mixed with a lot of self we begin to realize that we are more interested in our spouse meeting our expectations than our desire to truly love our spouse. The reality is, as we grow in our knowledge of God's word, our knowledge expands of seeing God correctly, who we are, and we start seeing the world around us with clarity. Disciple, by definition, means learner. And the disciple's life is a life of learning. It is a life of enlightenment. It is life that further sees reality at a deeper level. It's like focusing a camera. The focus becomes clearer the more we mature as a disciple of Christ. We aren't ever too old to mine another gem in Scripture, amen? It is a lifelong journey, a lifelong adventure of eye-opening, amazing truths the Holy Spirit reveals to us in the Word of God day by day. I wonder this morning, if we are growing in truth, Jesus says that we will know truth as a disciple. I wonder if we truly know God, because knowing God means we learn about ourselves. I wonder if our lives are marked with a continued zeal for learning, a continued uncanny joy for finding new truths from God's Word. I wonder if we are seeing reality this morning, if we are seeing life through the lens of God's Word, because God's Word is reality, amen? Well, let's go back to John 8, 31 and 32. We will get through these two verses soon here. It says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Which leads to characteristic number three. A disciple is liberated. Characteristic number three says, a disciple is liberated. Jesus says, the truth will set you free. A disciple is unchained. A disciple's shackles have been removed. And some of us may be thinking, okay, that sounds really great, really exciting. But I don't remember ever being a slave to anybody. Well, this is exactly how the Jews responded to Christ as well. Let's read on in verse, in John 8, 33. And this is what the Jews say to Christ. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The Jewish people responded to Christ with pride. You can hear, see their, you can imagine their chest sort of puffing up when they say, 
we are children of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. But their response almost seems delusional as history reveals that most of the time they were under tyranny of different nations. They were in bondage to the Egyptians, what, for over 400 years alone. And it's not mentioning being under slavery rule to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Grecians. And even at the present time when Jesus and the Jews are talking, they're under Roman rule, right? Which they desperately desired to be freed from. But the reality is, the Jews didn't consider themselves enslaved even when they were under slavery of another nation because they believed that they were inwardly free because of what was going on inwardly, their birthright. They were children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the problem was the Jews really didn't understand what Christ was talking about anyway. When he said, the truth will set you free, They were listening from a human perspective, a worldly perspective. They were clueless to the spiritual realities Christ was espousing to them. But I wonder, I wonder if we would get a different response today from people. Would most people understand what Jesus was referring to when he says, the truth will set you free? For example... Maybe I'm at Starbucks, at Starbucks, and I'm, I'm talking with somebody, right? And I tell them, I have some really great news to tell you. I mean, I have some unbelievable news, some astounding news. Do you want to hear it? And they're like, yeah, sure, yeah, come on, please tell me, right? They're wondering what's going on with me, but yeah, sure. And he says, what is it? And I say full of excitement, full of emotion, you can be set free right now. Your shackles can be unchained at this moment. You can be free from slavery. And he, the person, would probably be wondering if I'm okay, right? He probably is wondering, did I take my medication that morning, right? Or did I have too much to drink? And remember, I'm at Starbucks, so I'm drinking too much coffee, Right? But this morning, you may be wondering, what is Christ talking about when he says the truth will set you free? It is interesting. It's really interesting because many believe following Christ sounds like slavery, right? They say things like, well, if I decide to be a Christian, then I have to give up all my freedom. Or if I decide to be a Christian... I'm not going to be able to have fun anymore, right? Or if I decide to be a Christian or follow Christ... That means I have to follow a bunch of rules and regulations and have to go to church every week and listen to Terry yell at us, you know, that type of thing, right? They consider following Christ as bondage, yet Jesus says freedom is found in him. But Jesus is saying something even more than that, stronger, more astounding. He is saying that he is the only way to freedom, amen? That means everyone who is not a follower of Christ is under slavery, question is, to whom are they enslaved to? Well, it's a good thing we're going right down the verses because John 8, 34 gives us the answer. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
Jesus emphasizes this point by saying, truly, truly, which means for us to listen up, to pay careful or close attention to what I'm about to say. Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Christ does not talk about the penalty of sin here, but he emphasizes the power, the control sin has over unbelievers by saying those that practice sin is a slave to sin. So those who practice sin aren't doing so out of free will or out of a decision just to do wrong. Jesus is saying they practice sin because the power of sin controls them. Have we ever thought of it that way? They can't do anything else but sin, but obey their taskmaster. Sin dominates, it rules them. This describes the natural condition of humanity. Without Christ, we are all controlled by sin, the Bible says. AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, the first part of step one says, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, right? And that is exactly what I'm saying about sin. All unbelievers are are powerless over sin. It rules them. It has dominion over their lives. And this isn't something we learn. It is who we are from birth. We sin because we are sinners. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David recognized that sin is so natural for him that he concludes that he was born sinful. I was reminded of this sinfulness by my five-year-old Luke. Two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm breathing hard telling this story a little bit, but I told him to pick up his toys like usual, and he said, Daddy, I really don't want to. Now he's five years old. And I said, Luke, you need to obey your father. And he said, Daddy, I get to do what I want today. And I said, no, son, as my pride started rising up in my heart. No, you obey daddy every day. And he said, not today, daddy. Because the do whatever I want parade came in today. So I get to do whatever I want today. And I must say, I was shocked by his response, and instead of disciplining him, which I would have done, I asked him, where did you hear that line? What were you watching? Who were you with? What are you talking about? And he said, no one. No one, Daddy. It just came up out of me. (laughs) But that's how sin works, right? It just comes out of sinners. Now, it may not always be that creative or that clever. Nonetheless, that was sin working itself out of my son's heart. But let me stop here and ask if we understand the bondage Jesus is talking about. Do we see the power of sin? Do we recognize all those who aren't in Christ are still under the rule and reign of sin? You may be here today. 
envious of those who are living it up, doing whatever they want to do. But Christ reminds us that those who live for self are really controlled, enslaved, in bondage to the power of sin. They are mere puppets being moved by their twisted sinful nature. The power of sin is working all around us. It's often working in us. We can talk about addictions like alcohol. We can talk about drug use. We can talk about binge eating or anorexia. We can talk about the defiance in children. We can talk about the rebellion in teenagers. We can talk about the know-it-alls, adults, right? And what we are really talking about is the power of sin playing itself out in everyday life. Sin is a serious problem. It's a real problem. And Christ is the answer. Christ is the cure. Amen? Jesus says in John 8.36, our last verse, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? Which leads to characteristic number four. A disciple is liberated from the power of sin. A disciple is liberated from the power of sin. This is why the gospel is called the good news. Christ came to set the captives free. He came to heal the sick. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Christ saved wretches like us, amen? Christ saved us from the penalty and the power of sin. So the next question is, how are we able to overcome the power of sin when we become disciples of Christ? That is a good question. I'm so glad someone asked that because I was thinking the same question. When we turn to Christ in repentance and belief, God gives us his Holy Spirit, which means we have God himself living inside of us, and now the power of sin is broken, and now we have the ability to follow God instead of having to continue to be enslaved to sin. We now have the choice to either obey God or obey our flesh, our sinful nature, our carnal nature. So the question is this morning, are you free in Christ? Do you know this freedom that we can only find in Christ Jesus? In Christ, we find forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we become new creations. In Christ, we become children of God. In Christ, we have God as our Father. In Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we live for eternity with our Savior. In Christ, we inherit all the blessings of Christ. In Christ, we are all liberated from self and we can live for God's glory instead of our own. In Christ, we are set free, church. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you as we think about your grace that you continue to pour on us, Father. We thank you for your patience and love that you continue to show to us. Father, we thank you that your spirit works mightily in us. We recognize we could do nothing without your spirit working in us. We recognize the only thing we could do is sin. So we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the security we have in Christ Jesus, Father. I ask that you draw those this morning who don't know you. Help them to turn to you and repent and believe 
that Christ is Lord and Savior. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.